One thing that we have been learning over and over in the book of Hebrews is an important truth that will transform our lives. It will transform the way we live, the way we give. It will transform all of who we are 24-7, 365 days out of the year. And the truth of Hebrews is that Jesus is the greatest of all time. Now, as we've been going through these chapters, we keep hearing the same note. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. And rightly so. Don't ever allow that to become rote or or monotonous because that fact will change and transform us from the inside out. And so this morning, we're going to learn that Jesus once again is the greatest from a different perspective, from a different vantage point. This morning, we're going to learn that Jesus is the most valuable of all people. Now, today is a special day in our country. Hundreds of millions of TVs at 5.30 tonight will be tuned in to the Super Bowl. And, and the, the, the name of the Super Bowl is the Clash or the Battle of the Ages. We have a young quarterback in Patrick Mahomes, and we have an old quarterback, uh, Tom Brady. Now, I still feel young because... Tom Brady's my age, and he's still playing football. And if you've ever played the Turkey Bowl, you might see a little shadow of Tom Brady when you watch your pastor play. But at the end of it, a victor is going to be named, and a trophy is going to be given. The championship trophy uh, is going to be handed to a group of individuals. But right after that trophy is given, Another trophy will be given, and that's the MVP trophy. It's the Pete Rozelle trophy. And that's going to be given to the greatest player in the year's greatest game. Uh, Now, there will be great performances by lots of people, but 16 writers and broadcasters will determine and vote who the best of the best is. They will be brought up to the stage. They'll be handed a life-size silver football as a way to recognize their most valuable playing in that game. There's no other gift given. There's no reward of money or or a car or a trip. Uh, All it is is the recognition that in the biggest game of the year, you came out on top. Can I tell you that the biggest wagering that will go on today is not who will win and lose the game? Because of this year's Super Bowl and the two quarterbacks that are playing, The biggest betting right now is on who will be the MVP. Can I tell you that in the heart of every person who lives on this earth, right now they're wagering on who the MVP is? Not in a football game, but in life. Did you know that people are wagering not with money, but with their souls about who the most important individual in this world is, who they're going to worship, who they're going to give their time, talents, and treasures to, that they're going to dedicate their life to. Now, a lot of people have their own ideas on who the best MVP is. Some even think it's themselves, which we'll talk about in a couple moments. But the writer says once again that Jesus Christ is the MVP. He is the greatest of all time. And it is our job as Christ followers to wager all in on that truth, to not waver, to not falter in that faith or understanding. Now, what the writer has done is said Jesus is the MVP. He's the greatest of all time. Now, that doesn't mean there hasn't been great performances along the way. 
The angels, the patriarchs, the prophets, they have done great things. And in their place and in their moment, they did awesome works for God. Their works were remarkable. And then the law and the tabernacle and later the temple, those institutions, they did some great things. They they did a lot of good in their moments and their time in the spotlight. But amidst all of that, the writer of Hebrews says, All of that stuff from the Old Testament, it was good, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is more superior. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And we need to put our faith and trust in that. And so what the writer is going to do in verses 15 through 28 of Hebrews 9 is going to explain once again why that's the fact. And he begins to do it by talking about this idea of a mediator. And he wants to start the question. We're going to answer three questions today. Number one, who is our mediator? Who is our mediator? Now, before we can answer who he is, we've got to answer the question of what is this mediator? It's not a word we use very often. But it's a word that's used six times in the New Testament. This mediator is a middleman between two opposing parties. That is, he's a go-between, the one who bridges the gap, who builds a bridge between two groups of people. And he does so by being a trusted individual on both sides. He is trusted, even though the two sides may not trust one another, he is trusted as one who can speak and act on their behalf. Now, when it comes to the mediator between God and man, the people under the Old Covenant said, we need a mediator. It's been clear that we are sinners. It was clear that we are in trouble because of our sin. And so we need a mediator. We need one to go between us and God. But we need someone who's like us, flesh and blood, one who endures trials and troubles, who knows what it's like to be a human. We need one who we can uh, relate to. One who can represent us well. The problem with that is whatever mediator we would come up with, God would say they're not good enough. Abraham, not good enough. Moses, not good enough. David, not good enough. John the Baptist, not good enough. They were great, especially from a human perspective, but from God, they were sinful like the rest. You see, God wanted a mediator as well. Since the Garden of Eden, God has desired for a mediator to come to redeem people back to Himself. But the problem is is God's mediator needed to be perfect in every way. And so there was no man, no woman, no one young or old that would meet the criteria of being God's perfect mediator, but also one that was relatable to humanity. And so here we have a problem. That is until the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that is why the author says, notice in verse 15, that right away, who is our mediator? He says, therefore, He. Now, who's this He? we got to go back uh, a, a couple of verses. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Our go-between is Jesus. Now, why does He meet our thing? Because He became one of us. He put on flesh. He made His dwelling among us. He endured trials and tribulations and yes, even temptation. But on the God side of the equation, He did so with utter perfection and without blemish. And so this Jesus is able to bring two opposing parties together. Now, before you think, well, we got our guy and God got His guy and we just happened to get the same guy, we didn't choose Jesus. God, knowing we would never choose one who would work for us, who would uh, relate to us and would be perfect, the Bible says, but God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. And so we have this thing where God on both sides of the covenant brings us one who meets our need for a Savior who knows our pain and our plight, but who also can say that He is holy and righteous. Now, for much of the world, they won't select Jesus. We live in a world where we're looking for mediators. Some will pursue mediators of other religions, whether it's Buddha, uh, the gods of Hindu, uh, Muhammad in the Islamic faith. Others will choose Mary or some other saint of Christian religion. Still others, in fact, probably the most uh, used religion is the mediator where you say, I'm my own mediator. I'll figure it out on my own. But God's Word says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one mediator between God and man, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. Now the writer then moves and he says, okay, what are the reasons why he is qualified to be in this role? Notice verses 16 through 22. He goes on and he says, for there, when there is a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who has made it alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For whenever a commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Notice verse 23. Now, all of this was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered in the most holy of places, not made with heavenly hands, but human hands, which are copies of the true things, but He Himself was brought into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now let's stop there. In these verses, the writer is articulating the Old Covenant. How the Old Covenant sought to make people right in their sin. Now we have learned it didn't do all of the 
cleansing that it could. It wasn't a forever cleansing, and it wasn't a cleansing that addressed the conscience. But what we need to understand is what made Jesus better? What was it about Him that made Him a better mediator? To do so, we need to recognize that He shed blood in a way that was different than the old. Notice verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. A couple weeks ago, I was asked by an individual who I could tell was asking their question with fear and trepidation. And they did so, and I am glad they did, because sometimes we know that something's important, but we don't know why. And the question went like this, Pastor, why is God so infatuated with blood? Why do we sing about blood and talk about the blood and, and read about the blood and, and all of that? Why is that such a big deal? Why is it that the Bible talks about blood all the time? Well, for many of us, we just assume there's a reason for it, but we don't know why. So, so write these down because this is going to help us understand why Jesus Christ is so valuable to us. Number one, the shedding of blood reminds us that, first of all, sin is a terrible offense. In the Old Covenant, it talks about this blood of goats and, and rams and, and all these animals that would be sacrificed. But we forget because we're, we're Gentiles. We're not a part of it. But when you went to the temple, you would enter into the outer court. And in the outer court, it wasn't like our lobby where you would walk into that place and there would be some nice music playing and, and there'd be nice pictures and interaction. What you heard, and I don't mean to be crass, but what you would hear is the killing of animals. And if you've ever been a part of the slaughtering of animals, it isn't pretty and it isn't sounds you want to hear. There was grabbing of animals and forcibly putting them down on the altar and then cutting them. And you would hear the yelps and the cries of the animal. This surrounded the temple. And for the worshiper in the Old Covenant, they would be reminded of how heinous sin was. And they would be reminded that if it wasn't that scapegoat, then it was me on that altar. Me fighting for my life. Me yelling and screaming to stop. Knowing the pain and the anguish that was about to come my way. And then the slicing of my flesh. And the screams and the groans that would happen. We would be reminded of that. We as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ are not acquainted with this. But in the Old Testament times, they would have been. Blood told us that sin is heinous. It's a terrible offense. Number two, they would see the blood that was, was shed and, and they would learn that atonement was costly. This is really important. You would bring, we bring coffee to church, right? Here, I'm going to church. I got my coffee. I'm ready to go. They would bring their animal. And their animal they had tended to and cared for. Why? Because it was the prized pick of the litter. And so they would bring their best animal. And their animal would walk with them and, and they would feed them a couple more times on the way to the journey to the temple. And then they would bring the animal up. They would pick the animal up and they would hand the animal to the priest. The priest would take that live animal that you've tended to, that you've cared for, and he would turn around, place it on the altar, cut its throat, and it would bleed. That animal that you had invested so much time and energy in just lost 
It's life. Listen, my friends, sin is not a faux pas. Sin is not an indiscretion or a lapse in judgment. Sin is a heinous transgression against a holy God. And we make light of sin and we say, oh well, to sin is to be human. To err is to be human. But sin is an offense. And that Jewish individual would know that because that which was alive was now dead. And they would then recognize that could be me. But there's a positive side to blood. Why do we talk about blood? Because in Leviticus 11, or I'm sorry, 17:11, it tells us there is life in the blood. The crazy thing was is that the Old Testament said someone had to die. We saw that in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, that as surely as one sins, then comes death, for the wage of sin is death. And so there was this death that would take place with all of the ugliness and and crying and screams. But then what would happen is it would bring life. Life to the individual who that sacrifice was going to atone for. Uh, The best way to explain this is the um, night in Egypt when the Spirit of Almighty God went through the streets of Egypt. Now there was death. That night before that first Passover, many animals were killed. And their blood was applied to the doorposts of the homes of the Jewish people. And God's judgment passed over them. Thus, the blood, not just taking life of one, but giving life to another. So why do we talk about the blood? It reminds us of our sin. It reminds us the cost that is there to atone for our sins. And it's a reminder that with the shedding of blood, we have forgiveness of sins. We have a new lease on life. That's why we sing, as we'll sing later, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me as white as snow. There's no other fount I know. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now we know why God is so infatuated with it. Now here's the amazing thing. In order for our sins to be taken care of in the new covenant, we couldn't have blood of goats and lambs anymore. We needed someone to come in. And so this mediator, Jesus, who was perfect man, And all perfect God, He made the willful decision to offer Himself as a sacrifice for many. And that is number two, why He is so valuable. This Jesus, who was man and who is God, now places Himself on the altar, the cross of Calvary, so that we might be redeemed back to God. Now, the writer now gives in verses 24 through 26 some words. He gives a highlight reel. For Jesus has entered not into the holy place with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Go, back, go down to verse 28. So Christ, having offered 
once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him. Or write this down somewhere, because we'll get to the main thrust of the text of what he's trying to say. But we need to remember what the Bible in the book of Hebrews has already told us about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Quickly, write these down. We see the superiority or the supremacy of Christ, why He's so valuable first in His frequency as a high priest. We are told earlier in this letter, That unlike the high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, Jesus enters into the holy places of God continually interceding on our behalf. So we don't have to wait for a day on the calendar. Each and every day we wake up, we've got a mediator who is mediating for us. We see it in His frequency. Number two, His continuity. His continuity. We see this in the fact that a priest, a high priest in the Old Covenant, would serve for a lifetime, but then he would die. We are told over and over again that Jesus is our great high priest forever. So we see continuity, we see frequency. Number three, intimacy. The Israelites and even the high priests were kept at arm's length from God. There were curtains and doors that you couldn't enter into unless you were a priest. And then there were other curtains and doors you couldn't enter into unless you were the high priest. And even then, when you entered the Holy of Holies, you entered into a smoke-filled room that when God's presence came in, it was shrouded from full revelation because a sinful man could not be in the presence of Almighty God and be seen in that way. And so there's all these barriers but not so with Jesus. In fact, the text tells us, for Christ has entered, verse 24, not into, the, uh, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence. That word presence literally means now to appear face to face with God the Father. Now the amazing thing about Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus is more valuable than any other is Jesus is the only one who can look eye to eye to you and I as men and women and can also look eye to eye as an equal to God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says he's our brother, but he's also the eternal Son of God who is equal to the Father. And so we have this one, this mediator, who is able to mediate on both sides. Well, finally, we see His supremacy in the frequency, continuity, intimacy, finally sufficiency. His sufficiency. The book of Hebrews says that the Old Testament uh, altar could not address the conscience. It could address the physical, but not the spiritual, not the emotional, not the mental. But Jesus could. Now, all of this is all important, but there's one element that the writer in this text wants to get across. And it's one more reason why Jesus is the greatest of all time. I want you to notice twice we will see this phrase repeatedly. Some translations maybe you have continually. And then twice in our text you're going to see a contrast. The old way had to happen over and over and over again. The new way happened once for all. Now, again, we don't understand from a Gentile 21st century American worldview. We, we don't understand what's being said. In the temple during the days of Jesus, 
There were so many sacrifices being made. Animals upon animals were being killed that they built an aqueduct that would remove the blood from the place of the slaughter out to outside of the city. It was called the river of blood. And it would just roll like a river or a creek that you would see with tons and tons, gallons and gallons of blood. Again, a reminder of how heinous the sin was. But with Jesus, there was no river of blood anymore. There was no need for it. Why? Did we stop sinning? The answer is, help me out. No, we kept sinning. We found new ways to sin. The reason why wasn't that Jesus or God didn't think that blood was necessary anymore. Blood was still necessary. The reason why was Jesus' sacrifice was infinitely greater and more supreme than any sacrifice. He didn't need to bleed it anymore. That's why in verse 14 it says, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered Himself up without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus, when He went to the cross and shed that blood for you and me, died it once and for all. This theme of Jesus dying once for sin is seen four times in the book of Hebrews. Verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 12. And chapter 10, verse 10 and, and 10, 12. And then in Paul tells us in Romans 6, 10 the same thing. And Peter tells us the same thing in 1 Peter 3, 18. The idea is the song that we sang to finish our worship set today. Death was arrested when Christ died on the cross. And new life was given. There's no need for more shedding of blood because Jesus Christ did it once for all. And that's why when we sing about the cross, when we talk about forgiveness, it should revolutionize who we are. We should be yelling amen each and every time that the blood is talked about because we don't see a river of blood leaving the church. We see a cross that doesn't even have a martyred Savior on it. We have a mediator who is sitting in the presence of Almighty God interceding on our behalf continually. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, He said what? It is finished. So, our third question is, what does this mean? What does a relationship with our mediator produce? Now that we know we have this mediator, now that we know what he has done, now that we know that the Bible has been pointing to Jesus being this mediator throughout the Old Covenant and now in the New, what do we do with it? And what happens to us in our response to the mediator? Well, notice verse 27, because without Jesus, all we can expect is severe judgment. Verse 27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Let's stop there. In verse 27, the the author says, all right, I'm going to pivot from the mediator being a priest, and he moves to a courtroom setting. And what he says is, okay, each of us at some point in our lives are going to stand before a holy and righteous judge being God the Father. This God the Father is going to demand perfection. 
And so you and I are going to be on trial. We're going to walk in. The Bible says, when does this happen? After we die. We all die, and we're going to stand before him. What's your argument going to be? So here I am. Tim walks into the courtroom, and God says, why should I allow you into my heaven? And I said, well, listen, I'm not guilty. God the Father will say, well, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your turn. Um... Oh, I lived a good life. He says, yeah, a lot of people live good lives, but even good lives are filthy rags before a holy God. What else you got? Nothing. Well, what's left for me? Severe judgment. We don't have a mediator. And without a mediator, nothing can be accomplished. I have no one to speak on my behalf. And so what should I expect? Now notice, he's going to talk about this, and we're going to hit this in a couple of weeks, but just look over a page to Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. He says the following, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what's the knowledge of the truth? Jesus is your mediator. Give your life to him. Bow the knee to him. Submit yourself to him. But if you hear that truth and you just keep on sinning as if it doesn't matter, notice verse 26, what it says. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You got nothing. There's nothing for you to hold on to. So what can you expect? He says it in verse 27. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. The very sad thing this morning is that some in this place will say, I don't need to make much of Jesus. I don't need to listen to what Tim is saying. I don't really care. There are more important things in this world. I wish you would talk more about me and less about Jesus. And you're going to turn away from the truth that Jesus is the mediator. And you're going to live your life and God, because of His common grace to you, will give you new mercies each and every morning because He's a faithful God. But one day when you are without breath, you will appear before the throne of God. And God will say, not, oh, I'm glad to see you were on the rolls at Village Bible Church. That's not good enough. Oh, I'm glad you listened to Pastor Tim. He's pretty good. No, he's not good enough. And you are going to be consigned once and for all to a place called hell where you will experience, listen to me very carefully, unending and unbearable consequences for your sin that will go on forever and ever and ever. And the sad thing is, it wasn't that you didn't have an option. Jesus is right before you right now. He's standing before you saying, I loved you. I cared for you. And because you needed it, I died on the cross for your sins. And all I ask is that you would make me your mediator. You would make me the one who would be your advocate by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the greatest of all time. You are taken from a place of judgment to a place, notice, with Christ, with Him, supreme joy. Notice verse 26, it's pretty sad. Or verse 27, I'm sorry, really sad. Notice the contrast from verse 27 to 28. We've got doom and gloom, judgment and pain and sorrow. But verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Why? Because He's alive, my friends. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly 
are waiting for him. So the contrast is, is you may enjoy life for the here and now for a moment. But without Christ, you're going to end up at a time and a place you're going to need Him and your eternity is going to depend on it. But when we make Christ our mediator, when we receive the free gift of His mediating work in our lives, we don't just experience supreme joy in the next life, but in the life that is here already. This word for eagerly, is a word that is used, and every time it's a positive word in the Scriptures. This word, this Greek word, was used by one of the Greek philosophers, and he said it was the most supreme of all joys. Literally, the best way to explain it, pure ecstasy, unending joy, amazing joy. When we place our lives under the mediating work of Jesus Christ, we will experience the unspeakable joy that it is to know our sins are forgiven and we are in a right relationship with God. Not just in eternity, but as we eagerly await His return. So let me ask you this morning, who's your mediator? Let me ask you this morning, who are you wagering on as your MVP? For some, it's maybe someone else. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a pursuit in life. Maybe it's, it's your own good deeds. That will end in severe judgment. But when we put all of our wages and all of our time and energy down on Jesus Christ and we say, Lord, You're it, then you will experience the joy of a right relationship with God, a peace with God, a grace and mercy from God. And you will experience something that you and I could never experience apart from Christ. So two applications very quickly. One, If you're pursuing someone else, stop and pursue Jesus. And number two, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this truth causes us, it forces us to not look lightly to our sin. Your sin and my sin. Listen very carefully. The sin you and I, when nobody was looking this week, we sinned. That thought, that word, that action, that we didn't think it bothered anybody was the sin that put Christ on the cross. That endured all of that hostility. All of that forsaking by the Father. He did that with joy set before Him. And we would then just deliberately go on sinning? It should cause us to stop and say, what an offense my sin is to God. So I'm going to seek His forgiveness quickly. I'm going to do all I can to build disciplines and godliness into my life through the Word and through the Spirit so that I don't ever do this again because how crazy is it that I would trample under the blood of Jesus Christ in this way? Let us not be trifle with our sin, but let us rejoice and be grateful. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and we're going to close out this time by doing what we should do after a message like this. And that is to come to the table of Holy Communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took very very everyday elements, bread and, and wine. And He took them and He wanted to use them as symbolism of what He had done in this new covenant. He gave His life He shed His blood for us. And we ought to be those who now in response live in gratitude, 
live in obedience of all that He has done. So in the moments, Marianne's going to play and, and we are going to take some just moments here to quiet our hearts. And let me ask you to answer some questions. Is Christ your mediator? If not, today is the day you should make Him your mediator. And number two, knowing what Christ had to do to mediate in your relationship to God, what can you give Him praise for? What can you give Him gratitude for? And what things are keeping you from realizing and experiencing the fullness of the salvation that Christ brought? Jesus Christ shed His blood for us. Let's take some time to reflect and then we'll take the elements together.